Who here has either seen a James Bond movie or read a James Bond novel? Oh, good congregation. Uh, in the last, in the latest uh, Bond series with Daniel Craig, there's always a scene in every single movie without fail where the villain somehow gets a hold of, of Daniel Craig, gets a hold of Bond, and they tie him up. They bind him. And the villain begins to torture Daniel Craig, Bond, in some way, or he tortures somebody uh, who James Bond loves. He tortures his love interest. And because Bond is bound... Because he's tied up, of course, in that moment, he feels pretty much helpless to do anything. We can feel like that too. I want you to imagine a time in your life when you felt absolutely helpless. Maybe you've watched your child grow up and make bad decisions. Maybe you've lost a loved one to to cancer or some other disease. And as much as you truly wanted to help your loved one, you knew that there wasn't much, if anything, you could do. You have to sit and watch helplessly. You felt tied up. You felt bound. I know what it's like for years to watch my own mom do hardcore drugs. And I also know what it's like to wonder when my grandfather came and told me at 12 years old that she had died of a drug overdose, if there was, I remember wondering if there was anything I could do about that, if there was anything I could have done to stop it. The helplessness the powerlessness that we experience as we watch evil and suffering play out in our lives and in the world is perhaps one of the worst feelings we can ever experience. To sit back and know that we can do nothing about an awful situation helps us realize our own weakness and our own frailty. I don't have to do anything to convince you this morning that there's evil and suffering in the world. Every day there's Christians around the world who are being persecuted, threatened with death, martyred for their faith. And we all know about the Holocaust in Nazi Germany that killed six million Jews. But right here, in our own country, we kill nearly a million babies in the womb every single year. We sit back, tied up, bound, and witness injustice. We watch as rioters and looters destroy businesses. We watch, and I know from experience, having loved ones die because of this novel coronavirus. We're helpless to it all. There's nothing we can do about all this. There's hardly anything we can do. And in the midst of all this, we just want to scream, like, where is God in all of this? 
Why doesn't he do something about all the evil and suffering that's happening in the world? If we as Christians, we we claim that God is completely good and that he's all-powerful, but one of the biggest problems that unbelievers have with the Christian faith is what is known as the problem of evil. The argument goes like this. If God is all good, then that means he wants to end evil. If God is all powerful, then he has the ability to stop it. Yet evil exists. Therefore, God must not be all good or all powerful. They say that either God is evil, and so he allows evil to exist, or that God is good, but he's not powerful enough to stop the evil in the world, or that he's both evil and powerless. Let's not dismiss that argument. Let's not just cast it off. This is a real problem that needs an answer. And I want to address this problem, most specifically the part of the problem that concerns God's sovereignty. If God is powerful enough to put an end to evil, why doesn't he? Is God like us? Does he sit back? Does he watch the evil that happens in our lives, in our nation, and in the world, desperately wanting to do something about it but just can't? We're about to go into our text, and I first want to ask you if there is anything you can do when evil seems to prevail. Is there anything you can do when your situation seems hopeless? What can you do when your arms feel tied as evil is happening in your lives and in the world? The early church often felt helpless as well. We've seen in Acts the the various persecutions that the churches had to face. And in our text, they're facing persecution yet again. We are introduced to Herod for the first time in Scripture. This isn't the Herod that we find in the Gospels. If you remember, there's a, a Herod that killed all the boys two and under in Bethlehem. And there's also the Herod that tried and spoke to Jesus before his trial. This isn't that Herod. This is Herod Agrippa. About 10 years have passed since the crucifixion of Jesus, and this Herod that we see in our text is a relative of those Herods in the gospel. Now Herod, he was an official king of the Jews. He ruled over the Jews while Rome ruled over Herod. The first half of verse 1 describes Herod as a king. It says, about the time Herod the king, in verse 21, he's described as wearing royal robes and as sitting on a throne. 
Here's a question. What would provoke a king to kill? What would provoke a king to kill? When someone or some group threatens their kingship. We've seen that with Herod the Great in the Gospels when he tried to kill Jesus because Jesus was a threat. We've seen it in church history with King Henry VIII. And for Herod, this Christian movement has been causing all kinds of problems for him. It, it's opposed or it's threatening Herod's kingship from two different angles. First, because the Christians are going around claiming that Jesus is king and lord of the world, that announcement would have been seen as a direct threat to Caesar's rule over the known world at the time. And if that kind of thing, if people are announcing Jesus is lord of the world, Jesus is king, if that's happening under Herod's watch, then the Romans would have had Herod removed. Second, because the Christian movement was seen as a departure from Judaism by many, it was heresy to the Sanhedrin and others, Herod would have been pressured to put an end to it before the Christian ideas led Israel astray. So whether from the Romans or from the Jews, Herod had pressure to get rid of the Christians or otherwise lose his position as king. And so he decides he's going to start killing. Let's look at verse 1. About the time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So here he begins persecuting the church. It says he laid violent hands on them. And the first person recorded that was killed is James. Now there are many Jameses in the New Testament. Uh, the text explicitly says that this, is, this was the brother of John. If you remember in the Gospels, James was one of the original 12. He was one of the sons of Zebedee. James was also an apostle. And if you want to snuff out a movement, a good way to do that is to start getting rid of its leaders. And Herod, he, he begins his attack on the Christian movement by taking out one of the apostles. He killed James with the sword, verse 2. Now this is a step up in terms of the persecution because this isn't some alleyway stoning like it happened with Stephen. At this time, the Jews were allowed to execute criminals, and by saying that James was killed with the sword, Luke stating that this was an, ex, uh, an official execution by the state. What do you think the Jewish people thought about Herod killing James, the people Herod ruled over? They loved it. Look at the beginning of verse 3. His killing of James pleased the people. And so, because killing James had such a positive response, because Herod, Herod was motivated by the praise of men, he decides 
he's now going to start aiming for the top. And he goes after Peter. Verse 3 tells us that Peter was arrested. And he tells us that he had planned on after Passover killing Peter. So Peter is currently sitting in jail and waiting to be executed. Now notice the hopelessness of Peter's situation in our text. He was heavily guarded. Verse 4 tells us that four squads of soldiers were watching Peter. Verse 6 says that he had to sleep between two soldiers. He, had, he was bound with two chains. And also that guards were keeping watch over the door. If you guys remember the escapes that happened earlier in Acts, perhaps they're saying maybe we need to amp up the security detail. But seriously, thinking about this situation, unless you're like Houdini or Chris Angel, who's going to be able to escape this? No one. No one can escape this situation. This is an inescapable situation. Let's continue with the Bond theme. If you guys have seen Skyfall, in the movie they capture the villain at one point, they bind him and they place him in a maximum security holding place, and he's under constant surveillance. And it seems that they're doing the first century equivalent to Peter. Imagine what you'd be thinking if you're a Jewish Christian and a friend of Peter at this time in Jerusalem during all this. You'd feel helpless, right? James is dead. Peter is in an inescapable situation and he's awaiting execution. By all appearances, evil is won. Evil has prevailed. Where is God? Why doesn't God do anything about this? Of course the Jewish Christians knew that God doesn't always save his people. That's clear enough from James being executed. But can, and I emphasize the word can, can God save Peter from this evil if he wants to? Is this evil being done to the church outside of God's control? Is he just as helpless as the Jewish Christians? How does the church respond to this situation? As simple as it is, they prayed. Look at verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest, uh, sorry, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And verse 12 also shows us that they gathered together to pray for the situation. And so our first point from the text is just that. When evil seems to prevail, God wants us to pray. When evil seems to be prevailing, God wants us to go to our knees and pray. C.S. Lewis, he, he married an American writer named Joy Gresham. And there was a season in their life 
where Joy was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Lewis said he didn't know what else to do, so he felt helpless about the situation, so he just prayed. He says, I prayed because I can't help myself. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time. Waking and sleeping, I pray because I'm helpless. When Lewis felt helpless, he looked to God. As a side note, her cancer did miraculously go into remission. According to one exhaustive concordance, concordance, prayer is mentioned nearly 400 times in the Bible. And I know that hearing that we should pray when we feel helpless isn't some earth-shattering or groundbreaking idea to you. I know that you've probably heard this a million times. You've heard it before. But it's actually precisely because the Bible mentions prayer over and over again that we should really pay close attention to it. It's repeated over and over again because it's so important. And so when we're facing a difficult situation, when we see the evil happening in our lives and around the world, we need to call out to God, express our helplessness, express our desire for him to act. There's another reason we should pray. That's the next question I want to look at. We know that we should pray when evil seems to win the day, but why? Why should we pray? One thing that we should notice in our text is that we are witnessing a showdown. The first major section in Acts is about to end, and what we are seeing is a showdown between Israel's official king, Herod, and the unofficial true king, Jesus. Who's more powerful? Who's actually control, in control of this situation? Jesus or Herod? Herod He's done everything he can to Peter in terms of keeping him locked up. The security detail he has watching over Peter is overkill. By human standards, this is an inescapable situation. And now in verses 6 to 11, we're brought to the night that Peter is about to be executed. And as Peter and the church are no doubt feeling hopeless feeling like their hands are bound, tied. An angel of the Lord comes to Peter in verse 7. And the angel comes to Peter. He wakes Peter up. And at the end of verse 7, it says that Peter's chains fell off. And the angel tells Peter to get up and get dressed and follow him. Verse 9 and what is happening is so surreal to Peter that he thinks he's dreaming. He thinks this is a vision. But sure enough, Peter quietly sneaks past the guards sitting next to him. The angel, as if Peter were invisible, leads Peter past the guards. 
And when they reach the last barrier, the iron, an iron gate in verse 10, it just opens up for Peter and lets him escape. And then the angel just disappears. When Peter has a moment to reflect on what had just happened, he can only come to one conclusion, verse 11. Now I am sure that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. How amazing is that? What a miraculous escape. There is nothing impossible for God. Our God likes for all the odds to be stacked against him so that he can demonstrate his power over any and everything that opposes him. The miraculous nature of Peter's escape can be seen in the disciples' reaction. And Peter, he goes on and he arrives at the house of some of the disciples who had been praying about this situation. And as they're praying, Peter shows up at the gate. Listen to what happens beginning in verse 13. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. So they are here praying. They're here praying to God about this very situation, about what's happening to the church. They're praying about Peter. And when God answers their prayer, they can't even believe it. Instead, they tell the servant girl, Rhoda, that she's, she's gone insane. You've lost your mind. You're seeing things. And when the servant kept insisting that she saw Peter, they conclude that it was Peter's angel, verse 16. What does that mean? It's just another way to, to talk about Peter's disembodied spirit. In other words, there's no way Peter escaped from that. They must have killed Peter. Peter's dead now. You saw his spirit, his angel. I love how the Bible doesn't hide people's faults. These disciples are here praying for Peter's escape, and when God actually answers their prayer, they don't even believe it. Peter keeps knocking outside, and eventually they let him in. Peter goes in the house, and he explained to them that the Lord had helped him escape. And he tells them to let James, this is a different James, this is the Lord's brother, to know about what happened, and then Peter mysteriously leaves. Because Peter is now a marked man, this is one of the last times we'll hear from Peter in Acts. Peter leaves, and I think this, this idea of tell James what had happened, tell James the Lord's brother, I think what's being implied here is that he's leaving Jerusalem because he's a marked man, Peter is, and now he's tell, wanting them to tell James so James can take over as the new leader at the church in Jerusalem. 
What have we seen in this section? We've seen that God is completely sovereign and in control over even the most heavily guarded and thought out schemes of man to carry out evil. God is sovereign over guards, he's sovereign over chains, he's sovereign over visions, he's sovereign over gates. What about Herod himself? What about evil embodied? How do we know that God and the true rightful king of Israel, Jesus, is actually sovereign over the official King Herod? Let's go on. When Herod finds out that Peter escaped, he has all the guards killed. And one day, while Herod is sitting on his throne, he hears a plea, he's hearing a plea for peace from the people of Tyre and Sidon. And something happens during this hearing while it's happening, or something happens during this hearing because while this hearing is happening, the people begin to shout that Herod is a god. Look at verse 22. And the people were shouting, the voices of a god and not a man. This is evil on another level altogether. Herod is basking in the praise of being thought of as a god. As I said, our text today is about a showdown between two kings. And now Herod's not only standing in Jesus' rightful spot as king of Israel, but now he's being elevated to being called a god. Jesus versus Herod. God versus evil. Look at verses 22 and 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. God had had enough. If there was ever a question about God being helpless to stop evil in the world, that's your answer. God is the one who struck down Herod. That's what God thinks about evil. That shows God's power over it. It may have looked as though evil had prevailed and God's hands were tied in the persecution of the church. The Jews would have wondered why God isn't acting. But none of that was ever outside of God's control. He wasn't helpless to stop it. God is sovereign over Herod's evil schemes and even over Herod himself. And that's the answer to the question for why we should pray. Point two. We pray when evil seems to prevail and we feel hopeless because God is in control. God isn't helpless. God is sovereign. 
Imagine if you're at home and then all of a sudden I maybe unwelcomely burst through your door and I start screaming as I walk into the house that there are thousands of people outside of your home and they want to do harm to you and your family. How would you feel about that? Scared? Frightened? Now imagine that same scenario, but instead of me saying there are thousands of people outside, I say there's thousands of ants outside that want to harm you. How would you feel about that? Probably laugh and say, pass the magnifying glass. And that's because something like an ant is powerless against you. And in a much greater way, though all the plots and schemes of wickedness of men may scare us, it's nothing to God. They're powerless against God. He doesn't flinch, he doesn't panic, even for an instant. God likes for all the odds to be stacked against him. He often allows for evil to run its course for a season and then crushes it. In the Exodus, Egypt was, at the time, the most powerful force in the entire world. But it was nothing for God. Egypt was nothing for God. He single-handedly overcame them all through the plagues and drowning them in the Red Sea. Evil, all the evil in the world in no way threatens God. You want to know what God's reaction is when he sees evil forces and all the evil powers in the world uniting against him? You want to know how he reacts? It's not fear. Psalm 2 gives us some insight. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. In Psalm 2, we see evil uniting and plotting against the Lord and his people. Does that scare God? What's his reaction? Verse 4 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Even when the greatest powers in the world join forces against God, it's a joke to him. He's not scared. He's not helpless. He's laughing at their feeble attempts. And so for us, what that means is that all of the evil we see happening in the world, all of the killing and persecution of Christians, any injustice or evil that you're currently going through, any suffering that you're going through, know that God could end it all in an instant if he wanted to. It would be nothing for him to just say the word and end all the evil and all the suffering in your life. 
There's nothing, and I mean nothing, that you're going through and that you're experiencing that is outside of God's control. And on the flip side of that, that means that sometimes God wants us to endure evil and suffering. God could have saved James by killing Herod earlier, but he didn't. And that brings us to our last question, perhaps the most important one. If God is in control, if God could end the evil against you in an instant, why doesn't he do so? Why allow evil to happen in the first place? There's a few reasons in our text, or at least a few outcomes of evil happening in the world. One, we see that evil causes spiritual growth. Where do I see that? Well, when James and Peter was arrested, this evil led to the church trusting and praying to God. God uses suffering, persecution, evil to grow people spiritually. But we don't only see spiritual growth, we also see numerical growth in the body of believers through evil. Look at the result of God demonstrating his power over evil, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. That's another way of saying the church grew in numbers. The word of God increased in the sense that its influence increased among even more people. More people came to the church. More people believed in Jesus. God, freeing Peter from prison and striking down Herod, demonstrated who was the true king. The one that's truly sovereign, it showed that it was Jesus and more people came to believe in him. The church grew in numbers by seeing the sovereignty of God and seeing the futility of idols as Herod died and the people watched their idol die by the hands of the true king. So point three, God uses evil and suffering for greater purposes. God uses evil and suffering for greater purposes. There's a tree known as the yew tree, Y-E-W. Anybody ever heard of that tree? Probably not. Well, let me tell you about it. The yew tree is so dangerous, so toxic, so poisonous to humans that its nickname is the tree of death. But not too long ago, the medical community discovered that they can take the toxic properties from the bark of the yew trees and use it to target cancer cells. Today, the yew tree is used to treat breast, lung, and ovarian cancer. What was known as the tree of death is used as a source of life to many people. Something bad is used for good purposes. God 
with every evil thing and with every evil intent in the universe, he takes something evil and he uses it to bring about a greater good. And the story that Evan read this morning from Genesis 50, Joseph's brothers sold Joseph into slavery. And what does Joseph say to his brothers after he saw them several years later? What's he tell them? He said that you all meant to sell me into slavery for evil, but God meant it for good. In other words, there are two purposes for evil happening in Genesis 50. Two purposes. Evil happens, there are two purposes. One, Joseph's brothers had evil intentions. They wanted to sell him into slavery, for selling him into slavery. But God had good intentions for Joseph being sold into slavery. One evil act, two purposes. And God did use that evil of Joseph being sold into slavery by causing many people to live during a famine. The evil and suffering that we see in our world every day, it's not senseless. It's not happening without purpose. We may not see it now, but God is using all of it for good. You grow through the evil and suffering that happens to you. The church grows through the evil and suffering and persecution that happens to it. And that's why, particularly this Friday, I want to have a prayer meeting because we should be praying for the church to grow as it did in this text. We should be praying for the world to repent precisely in these difficult and trying and evil times. There is one more purpose we can see for God allowing evil in the world to glorify him. How does that happen? Remember how the church couldn't believe that Peter had escaped from being executed. God allowed that to take place precisely so he could demonstrate his power against it, which glorifies him. Also, by destroying evil, it shows God's hatred for evil and so highlights and magnifies his holiness and his goodness. And so the contrast between evil and God shows us even more clearly his holiness. Let me ask you a question. If you're to go home today and at noon you take a floor lamp for some reason outside on your back deck at noontime and you turn it on, is that going to make much of a difference? Are you going to be able to see the light? No. 
Why would it be hard to see the light of the lamp at noon? Because of all the light that's surrounding it. What about if you take that same lamp, you go outside and turn it on at midnight? That light would shine so bright in the darkness. And in the same way, God uses all of the darkness in the world, all of the evil, all of the murdering, all of the human rebelling as the black backdrop to help us see Jesus Christ shining like a light in all his glory. Evil used to glorify God. The glory was always there. His love was always there. But it would never shine so brightly until it was contrasted against that darkness. God used the evil of rebellion in the garden so we can see the glory of Jesus on the cross. And God is saving for himself a people who are going to worship him for eternity in ways we never could have, exper- uh, never could have before had we never experienced evil and suffering in the world. We are going to see Jesus in a way and in a light that we never could have before had we never experienced suffering and evil in the world. Angels long to look at our salvation. So as Paul says, know that all the evil and suffering you face, what's he say? He says it's creating an eternal weight of glory and eternal joy as you marvel at Jesus and his work forever. Though evil seems to prevail right now, though it seems to win the day, one day Jesus will return. And for the people who have been carrying out evil against God and against his people, they are going to wish for mountains to fall down and crush their bones rather than have to endure the wrath of the Lamb. He will one day end all evil. But that's one of the answers from our text to the problem of evil. God allows evil to happen, not because he can't stop it or because God likes evil himself, because he's going to be greatly glorified when he defeats it. We grow by it. And we'll have a greater joy in seeing Jesus' glory when he comes back and puts an end to it altogether. If you're here today and you're not trusting in Jesus or you're on the fence, know that 
You're not in some neutral category. If you haven't repented and believed in Jesus, whether he returns in your lifetime or if you die, you are going to stand before him. And so my plea to you this morning is to consider Jesus on the cross overcoming the greatest evil in the world by love. He will overcome your rebellion. He will forgive you of your sin if you repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your glory. Thank you for your holiness. Thank you for letting us know that what we are experiencing in our life is not senseless, it's not purposeless, but know that it's putting a, glor- it's a, putting a weight of glory around us so that we will worship Jesus in ways we never imagined otherwise. We trust your your plan. We trust you, Father. And we thank you knowing that you could put an end to any and all evil in an instant. And that gives us comfort, knowing that you are sovereign over evil. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.